Thank you for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness. You can also find and interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. All the relevant links are at zerobrightness.com. We'll see you out there. Humans are particularly obsessed with death. I mean, maybe all living things are, but as the biggest monkeys with the thickest brains, we seem to think about it, talk about it, and pontificate on it the most. We have lots of different terms to describe people who we think fixate on death too much, like morbid, death-obsessed, goths, etc., etc. But the truth is that basically everyone is a little bit fixated on the idea of death and dying. This makes complete sense to me. I personally think about death as the border of life, the thing that defines its arc and gives it a shape. If you're in the middle of it, you might not have to think about it too much, but eventually you are going to travel out and have to look and see where you're going. If you, like me, grew up in a religious environment, you're probably familiar with the idea of death consciousness. The idea that you need to be conscious and aware of death because of its spiritual implications for you as a good practitioner of whatever faith you believe in. Death consciousness gives us an excuse to think about death, talk about death, and consider its implications without being labeled as a goth freakazoid asshole. And this is coming from someone who's been repeatedly labeled by other people as a goth, so to all my fellow goth freakazoid assholes, it's, it's nothing but love. That said, I do find the idea of death consciousness useful. Because even though I'm not religious anymore, I mean, I view myself as a cultural Muslim. I don't believe in heaven, hell, God, or any of that stuff. I do think the idea of death consciousness is useful when looking at and critiquing art. Even more than people themselves, the art that they make is particularly obsessed with death. And I mean, all the stuff we talk about on this show, whether it's explicitly capital H, horror or something that is more like horror adjacent, it's all pretty fucking morbid and it generally tends to be obsessed with death. Looking at the wider history of art too changes nothing. We see depictions of death all over the place in classic visual art. We see death used constantly as plot points in classic literature. And as we move into the modern era, things haven't gotten any more or less obsessed with death maybe a little bit more obsessed with the end of the world and the death of everything, but well, that's an entirely different conversation that I'm sure we're going to have at some point. The video game's medium is unique, however, in the sense that death isn't just a plot point or something to be portrayed in a video game. It actually has a utility. In video games establishing phase mostly as arcade units, a few tropes were established, one of them being the idea of lives. So like if you were playing a platformer or an adventure game where you were 
moving around a humanoid or human character, you were given a set amount of lives. This was the number of times that you could fail and thus die before you needed to put more money into the arcade machine. The classic platformer setup was that you would move a little avatar through a series of challenges and if you fucked up, you would die and you need to use one of your lives. Now this idea worked really well in the arcade because it meant that people had to keep putting in money to play or they needed to master the game and play at an insanely high skill level. When games moved on the home consoles, this idea was ported over whole cloth. Initially, people didn't really have any good ideas about what to do in order to make this more home console friendly, besides just make the games obscenely difficult, which, sure, that was a choice, and we all dealt with it in the NES era, although very few were happy about it. As games became longer and more complex, a few different ideas started to seep in. The big one was save points. This basically did away with the idea of lives and continues and meant that you could save your game either whenever you wanted or at designated points. So if you died, you would just reload at that save point. This was initially popularized by longer games like RPGs and action adventure games, but eventually would make its way into just about every genre of game you can think of. The fascinating thing about death and save systems in video games is that these two ideas basically ruled the medium for close to 30 years. I mean, you saw some different takes on it. You saw some genre cross-pollination. You saw some platform-specific stuff like Save Anywhere, Limited Save Anywhere. But generally speaking, everything was somewhere between the two poles of a lives-based continue system and an RPG-style save point system. It felt like everything was just stuck on those two points or floating somewhere in the middle. No one was really trying to do something radically different and unique with saving and addressing the issue of death and dying in a nuts and bolts way in video games. I find this really fascinating because there was so much other innovation going on during the 80s and 90s in video games, especially the 90s when so many of my favorite video games were being released and so many amazing classic games were coming out. And yet going back, all of them either have like super, super basic save systems or have some kind of weird, janky, slightly broken way of giving the player the opportunity to save and continue their game. This is a problem that would only be exacerbated in the seventh gen when things were slowly transitioning into a sort of save anywhere norm, which is kind of where we are today. Most games just don't have a very distinct save system or they have something that is surprisingly close to save anywhere. In the beginning of the seventh gen, however, things were not so well defined and games were trying all sorts of different weird hybrid systems that were kind of convenient and kind of broken and busted. My mind always jumps right to Dead Rising, which in its initial release had one of the most confusing, weird, and broken save systems I've ever seen in a video game. This is all to say this. Video games came out strong with a simple idea for how death and restarting would work 
in video games, and nobody really challenged it for many, many years. However, in the late 90s, around the time that video games started to get a lot more complex with their storytelling and started to incorporate things like character death and the idea of dying, we also started to see some very interesting and different takes on the nuts and bolts idea of death and rebirth in video games. 1999 was the year and Dreamcast was the platform where we actually got two games that challenged gamers' ideas of death in video games. The first one was Shadow Man, which I'm only going to mention in brief because Shadow Man is a game that I loved as a kid, but as an adult, I just can't really get into. It's a little bit too janky for me. Um, I tried it again and it didn't really draw me in, but there is a really fascinating central idea in Shadow Man that once again would be paralleled in another game that I want to talk about a little bit more. The basic idea here is that in Shadow Man, you're playing as a character who is essentially undead. This was kind of new territory for video games. Like, how does a character die if they're already dead? In Shadow Man, the idea was basically that if you died, you kind of got sent to like a lower plane of existence where everything looked a little bit spooky and you're going to have to fight your way up to the top side in order to continue playing the game as normal. This is basically set up as a Silent Hill-esque other world and it's a really cool idea, but it's one that I think is a lot better realized in Legacy of Cain Soul Reaver. Yes, Legacy of Kane's Soul Reaver is a very similar game in a lot of ways. Once again, it was released the same year, 1999. I played it on the Dreamcast, although it's, it was available on a few different platforms. And yeah, let me just say this. Soul Reaver's a fucking banger. At the time, it blew my mind. I've played it a few times since as an adult, and I still actually think it's a really fun and interesting game. If you haven't played it, it's an action-adventure game in the Legacy of Kane series, and it's one that is really unique for actually many, many reasons. The original Legacy of Kane game was called Blood Omen, and it was kind of a Diablo-like, um, you know, action-adventure game, except it was set in a fantasy world that had vampires, and it was starring vampires. Soul Reaver is the sequel to that game, except in the opening cutscene, the protagonist of the first game brutally disfigures and murders the protagonist of the second game. He's resurrected as this weird kind of undead wraith. He's had his jaw ripped off. He's all fucked up looking. That's why he covers himself with his iconic scarf. And then the game starts. And to reiterate, everything here is different. Different tone, different protagonist, different gameplay style. It's a 3D third person action adventure game. It really, really heavily focuses on the idea of your character being undead, so you can move between material and spiritual planes. There's a lot of exploration and puzzle solving that revolves around you flipping back and forth between these planes. And once again, besides just like the basic, you know, 3D exploration and combat being good and fun to do, the main draw here is like the atmosphere and the world design present here. I love, love, love how the game portrays this kind of 
ghostly and abandoned spiritual plane and then contrasts it with this kind of like brutalist hellscape of the material realm. In the material realm, you're fighting vampires and weird creatures. In the spiritual realm, you're kind of exploring this weirdly serene, ghostly world. I absolutely, I absolutely love it. I think it has such a great vibe and such a great aesthetic. I love that it manages to contrast sections that almost feel like a modern chill exploration game with sections that are like very, very 1999 Dreamcast action adventure game. It kind of gives you the best of both worlds in those regards. And I've always been just like a huge fan of this game. It's both way ahead of its time and also very, very of its time. It's like this weird mix of like being impressively forward thinking and hugely nostalgic for me personally. And uh, yes, I always have a good time returning to this game. And if you have any interest in any of those things I just mentioned, I really think you should check it out. But the main reason that I want to talk about Soul Reaver, the main reason that I find this game so fascinating is the way that it handled death. Like Shadow Man, you're playing as an undead character and one who, if they quote unquote, die, i.e. they're defeated in combat, basically just gets transported to a kind of shadowy, watery underworld. And once again, they'll need to fight their way back to where they were in order to continue their quest. The big idea here is that continuous play creates more immersion not kicking players to a game over screen or, you know, kind of artificially restarting their play session like most, if not all games at the time would, created a very unique and specific feeling in the player while playing this game. It helped that Soul Reaver is a hugely, hugely atmospheric game. It has a very, very specific visual style. It has a very, very specific sense of atmosphere in the music and sound design. But the fact that you never have to see a game over screen also meant that you kind of had your head deeply dunked into this world for the entire time that you're playing this game. Now, this mechanic ultimately is very simple, and it's simple in both of these games. It's basically a glorified checkpoint system that also adds in the kind of walk of shame that would be later popularized by another game that of course I'm going to talk about in a few minutes here, but it works. It's simple, but it's effective. I think the big trick here is that it makes death diegetic. It kind of revealed that in pretty much every other video game I had played before these two games, death was kind of a weird immersion breaking experience. We know canonically the player character is probably not supposed to die. We know that in terms of flow state, we're not supposed to just hit a dead stop and get kicked back to a game over screen or God forbid a title screen. And yet we had just gotten used to that as like the norm in video games. That's just how video game works. So we sort of said, whatever, I guess it's fine. Soul Reaver and Shadow Man both had a unique opportunity here because they're sort of dark fantasy games where you were playing as an undead character. They got to fully dive in and say, hey, wait, why would this character die? What would a better option be for players? And once again, what would it be like if death was diegetic? That is that it exists within the context of the story 
and world. Death isn't like a glitch that happens because the player fucked up. It's something that can actually happen within the context of this story and experience. To me, Soul Reaver was like mind blowing. Those long, languid play sessions with the game were just so cool and memorable for me. And I really thought that this game design style was going to take off at the time. However, something else happened, and it was something really, really fucking weird. In the years that followed the release of Soul Reaver, open world games became very, very popular. However, none of them decided to even try and do something close to the death mechanic in Soul Reaver. It was like games were getting larger and more immersive and more open-ended, and yet they were still using traditional death mechanics where you die, you see a game over screen, you start from your last save or a checkpoint. Open world games became notorious for abusing checkpoints, and it always was so weird to me because it was like, Hey man, Soul Reaver came up with a great idea for how to handle this. Why doesn't anybody approach it this way? In some ways it makes sense because like the most popular open world game was Grand Theft Auto, which is a patently non-fantasy game. So maybe it would be weird to have your sort of like player created criminal spawn in hell and have to like briefly fight their way back to the surface. But now that I say that out loud, that actually sounds really fucking cool. And um, there was a real failure there. There's a lack of creativity. We should have gotten Grand Theft Auto Reaver is what I'm saying. Sadly, we didn't get that. And it would be 10 long years before another company tried with another game to redefine death in video games. That company was FromSoft and the game was Demon's Souls, but it wasn't until a few years later with Dark Souls that they really hit it. And yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's another episode where I'm gonna talk about Dark Souls, but whatever, just deal with it. Cause this is really important. Dark Souls redefined death and dying in video games. And that's just not like my opinion, man. That's a fact. If you look around today, you can see that we live in a post Dark Souls world. Every company from like your friend's indie game studio up to Nintendo, like Nintendo, you ever heard of them, have more or less wholesale stolen the death mechanic from Dark Souls, or at least borrowed a few ideas for their own game. And it's with good reason. Specifically, the reason is this. The death mechanic in Dark Souls fucking rules. Now, for me personally, this is something that I noticed and appreciated about the game immediately, even as I was struggling to enjoy other aspects of it. And it's because it immediately reminded me of those Dreamcast classics. Dark Souls death mechanic is basically just a refinement of the same idea from Soul Reaver, which is, hey, what if death was diegetic? What if it was part of the story and world we built and it made sense within the game? And what if, as a bonus, it was presented in a way that was continuous? What if you never had to traditionally die the way you do in a video game, but your session would just kind of keep going? It's once again a simple idea. It's not that much of a leap from the traditional way that video games had functioned in the past, but it's enough to give the player another push. These games have such a great forward momentum, they keep pushing you forward like, hey, don't you want to try again? Hey, 
Don't you want to try again? Don't you want to keep going? Maybe you give that boss another shot, etc., etc., etc. You get what I'm saying. This is part of the genius of the death mechanic in Dark Souls. So if you're not familiar, I'll explain it very briefly. In Dark Souls, as you play the game, you fight enemies and you accrue something called souls. Souls are basically a catch-all currency. You use them to level up your character, but you also use them to buy items from shops. And it's like the central driving force of the video game. The game kind of has a weird little economy because of this. And you know, you can find endless forum posts and videos online about how to game it, how to grind, etc, etc, etc. When you die in Dark Souls, you lose all of these souls that you had on your person that you hadn't yet spent. But you also get one chance to go and redeem them. If you make your way back to the place where you died and find your body, you can retrieve your souls. If, however, you die twice in a row without retrieving your souls, those souls are now lost and gone forever. This works hand in hand with the game's checkpoint system. The game has these checkpoints called bonfires that you activate and when you die, you'll be warped back to the last bonfire that you rested at. Resting at bonfires resets your health, but it also revives all the enemies in the area. So the game kind of turns into this Castlevania-esque fight to move from bonfire to bonfire, unlocking new pathways and shortcuts, and you know, generally just trying to survive in this very brutal and violent world. It's fucking awesome. And despite how punishing it can be, it's also very, very addicting. And once again, very, very immersive. Now, there are definitely some nuts and bolts refinements here from something like Soul Reaver, but in my opinion, the biggest jump up is the way that it's actually fully integrated into the game world. Not just in a gameplay sense, but also in the themes and the storytelling and the presentation. This takes it many layers deeper than something like Soul Reaver. And I think that's why it had such an impact on players. So let's start at the first layer, nuts and bolts. Like I said, this death mechanic is very fun to use. It keeps pushing you forward. It makes you want to play more. And at a basic level, that's what any mechanic in a video game should do. It should either draw you in and or make you wanna play more. One of the reasons that I find this mechanic so fascinating personally is that as I've said many times on this show and Zero Brightness Plus, I'm not a fan of roguelike games. Whenever I try to get into a roguelike game, I play it for like a few hours tops and then completely bounce off of it. But Dark Souls is more or less a different take on a roguelike style game. It has a lot in common, but it also bridges the divide between roguelikes and like everything else by having a lot of really solid, concrete stats-based progression that you can also fall back on even as you're doing these continuous, never-ending, repetitive runs within the game world. So yeah, fun. But to take it a level deeper, let's go back to the idea of death being diegetic. 
once again, in this game, you play as a wraith. And that was like the big idea in Shadow Man and Soul Reaver. Hey, you're a wraith. Look at how this guy doesn't die. Dark Souls is definitely an entry into the, hey, you're a wraith. Look at how this guy doesn't die canon. However, it also does something quite different with that whole idea of death being diegetic. In this game, each death mirrors something that is fundamental to the game's world, themes, and storytelling. And that is the choice to go on. Each time you die in Dark Souls, I don't think it's a stretch to say that it's incredibly frustrating. This whole game is kind of built around and themed around the idea of frustration. And although the game makes continuing on easy and keeps pushing the player forward, it also keeps pushing you backwards quite aggressively. Each time you continue to go on after dying, you are making a concerted choice to go on. And in Dark Souls, the first one, this kind of ends up being the central idea in the game's story and themes. The world of Dark Souls is horrible, it's crumbling, it's dead and dying. And the more you fight towards its center, you realize that there isn't really much left here. And yet, you keep pressing on, you keep continuing on with the game, and you keep fighting. In the game's now famous ending, you essentially make a choice to either sacrifice yourself to let the world continue going on, or simply let the central flame go out and thus doom this world forever. Now, much has been made of an ending that ultimately is very short and very simple. Like, a lot of people talk about the thematic meaning behind it or the story implications, especially considering what we now know from Dark Souls 3. However, what I find fascinating about this ending is that the game has been forcing you to make this choice in miniature the entire time you've been playing this game. Once again, in the course of playing Dark Souls, you will have come up against impassable or seemingly impossible obstacles over and over and over. It could be an area, it could be a boss, it could be a single like scrub enemy that just keeps killing you, once again, over and over and over. And it's up to the player to make that choice to either go on or give up. If you struggle through and make it to the end of the game, you are once again presented with the same choice, but just abstracted and put into a different light. Now, to me, the genius of this ending is that, once again, it recasts that choice that you've been making throughout the entire game. Do you continue and press on into a world that is clearly dead and dying, or do you just let it go and let it die? There isn't like a right or wrong answer here. I mean, there's barely any difference between the two choices you make, but it's all about personal choice. It's all about how you approach the game and you know, on a deeper level, how you approach challenges. More than any specific story lore or world building type of thing, this is what I think is so genius about the death mechanic in this game. It ends up being about personal choice and personal reflection. It makes you actually think about what you're doing, not just in the game, but in the real world. And that's why so many people, including myself, have such strong reactions to this game. It's not just like game hard, make mad, throw controller. It's like 
the game actually makes you start to like get existential. Like, am I wasting my life? Does this thing that I'm trying to do have value to me as a person? Do I actually care? And me personally, I've been all over the place with this game. I've had moments of like, yeah, I am wasting my life. I need to stop. I've had moments of like, no, this really matters to me. I need to keep going. And I've experienced like every emotion in between. That to me is like the real power of Dark Souls. And, you know, to expand it out, any of the Soulsborne or modern FromSoft type games, they really get a reaction from the player. But it's not just because of one single thing, right? It's not like one single story beat or one world building idea. It's the whole construction of the game and the way that they're built around that idea of choosing to continue on and that idea of personal choice. I think it really, really is brilliant. And that is the reason why it's been so influential and why we felt the resonance and the influence of this one single idea so strongly throughout the rest of like the entire games industry. But of course, it goes even deeper. With the sequels to Dark Souls, we see the developers exploring ideas of death, rebirth, and decay. And once again, they are all tied explicitly to the gameplay and the game design within these games. I've already talked about Dark Souls 2 in another episode, but to quickly reiterate, I really think it's the best storytelling in a FromSoft game. It's weird, it's meta, it's got a really beautiful and unexpected twist. It basically plays on all of these things that the player assumes about the game in order to do something really dark and cool with the storytelling. And once again, it all hinges on the game's mechanics. In that game, I think part of the brilliance is it's not just about death and rebirth, it's also about entropy and decay. Entropy and decay also end up being the major themes in Dark Souls 3. And once again, we get a game that from the ground up is built around immersing the player in these ideas. It's not just in cutscenes, it's not just in deep lore, like many fans of this series suggest, but it's every single piece of the game that immerses you in the world and communicates to you these themes of entropy, death, and decay. To me, it all comes back to that central death mechanic, and I think that is the true brilliance of it. When we go back and we look at something more embryonic like Soul Reaver or Shadow Man, the death mechanics are cool, and they're really cool, and I think that they add so much to the atmosphere and the world building of the game. But those games also don't really do anything with it in a thematic sense or a story sense. The Dark Souls games do, and that's why I think they're masterpieces. Apart from any of like the fun gameplay stuff, the fun progression stuff, all the nuts and bolts things that I and others like about these series, that one single idea is truly the thing that I think elevates these games above almost anything else in the space. And in looking to see like what influence these games have had upon you know the rest of the industry, I always come back to this death mechanic. I think it is the single most recognizably Dark Souls thing that we see in other games. 
People like to joke about stuff like dodge rolls or like Estus flasks, but to me, when a game has that Dark Souls, vaguely roguelike-ish death mechanic, that's when I start to think, oh, somebody here likes FromSoft. Now, since I first tried Dark Souls, there have been a lot of games that made me think, damn, somebody here likes FromSoft. But some of them might be slightly weirder picks than others. This one to me is like one of the most obvious, but to a lot of other people is nowhere near being something like a Souls-like. But I really want to talk about it in this context because I think there's a lot of similarities. I think it's also very germane to this conversation. That game is, of course, Near Automata. Okay, so Near Automata. It's one of my favorite games ever. I'm kind of obsessed with it. And I haven't done a full episode on it because I decided to do an episode on the original Nier first, and that took up a lot of time. Uh, so, you know, I still definitely reserve the right to do a Nier Automata episode at some point, but I recently replayed it on Switch. And one thing that was so interesting to me was that I was really struck by how the death mechanic is woven into the story. And how important that is for a story that is all about existential horror. Now, something I've been thinking about a lot because another one of my favorite games ever that's definitely going to come up again soon, which is Soma, is also an existential horror tale. It's maybe the existential horror tale. And yet, if there are any criticisms you can make of it or you know shortcomings you can say that the game has, it's definitely in the gameplay. And a lot of it centers around how basic the death mechanic is in that game. Like, that's a game where you can die and get kicked back to a checkpoint. And it's so weird and distracting and kind of out of place that they eventually patch the game to have a story mode where you can't die. To me, that's just kind of an admission that like, this was a problem with the game. Near Automata, although it's a very, very different game in just about every way it could be, I think that in terms of its themes and the way that it approaches existential horror, there are a lot of similarities. And their solution to that idea of what to do about death is not just really, really smart and effective, it's also just like kind of brilliant. So what they decided to do was essentially a riff on the Dark Souls death mechanic. In this game, if you die, you need to go retrieve your body to get your equipment back. You'll get kicked back to the nearest checkpoint, etc., etc. It's very, very similar to Dark Souls. However, the way that it's presented in the game is very, very different. And this starts right in the game's intro. Now, this game's intro is kind of iconic and legendary for good and bad reasons, but the thing that really stuck out to me on this playthrough is right at the end. There's a moment where the two main characters who are just meeting and working together for the first time are in an unwinnable situation. And, you know, seeing as they're androids, they decide to detonate their black boxes and essentially kill themselves. They then immediately wake up aboard the mothership that they beam down from, only to find that one of them remembers everything right up until the moment they decided to detonate their black boxes. And the other one's memory was reset at an earlier point. So 
they essentially both experience the same like weird, crazy, traumatic thing. But because of this kind of death and rebirth mechanic, which once again is diegetic, it exists within the context of the game's world and story, one of them doesn't remember it. This basically sets up all of the other themes and conflicts for the remainder of the game with one simple, elegant little scene. And it's also one that explicitly references the death mechanic in this game. Like, the absolute fucking genius of this move, like, cannot be overstated. Once again, I mean, this was the main thing I took away from my entire, like, you know, third or fourth playthrough of this game that I did recently, was like, that one moment is insanely genius. So, okay, let me backtrack a little bit for the people who aren't aware. What is Nier Automata? Nier Automata is a sequel slash spiritual successor slash kind of offbeat remake of the game Nier. If you don't know what Nier is, well, you can go listen to my episode on it because it's very, very thorough. With Nier Automata, they decided to change basically everything, the setting, the aesthetic, the gameplay style, etc., etc., etc. However, they kept a lot of the central themes the same. They even borrowed like the big mid-game twist from Nier, which I think is one of the like weirdest and most audacious things I've ever seen a video game do. I both kind of love and hate it, just like, you know, everything regarding the Nier series. But what they get right in this game and what I think kind of elevates it above the original Nier in a story way is that they use all of these changes, like this new setting, this new story, et cetera, et cetera, to explore the idea of existential horror and the horror of sentience. Near Automata is set on Nier's version of Earth, but thousands and thousands of years in the future. At this time, humanity has long fled Earth to escape the threat of the quote-unquote machines. Now, the machines are like simple automatons. They kind of look like Soviet-era depictions of robots, and they're contrasted by the protagonists of the game, who are androids. Androids are humanoid robots who seem to exhibit all of the same characteristics as humans. They seem to have personality and emotions, etc., etc., etc. But the game, and specifically the main protagonist of the game, 2B, get it, uh, likes to pay a lot of lip service to the fact that androids are not supposed to have any of these traits. What androids are supposed to do is just beam down to Earth and kill machines so that eventually Earth can be resettled by humanity, who apparently have been living on the moon and sending down androids to clear out Earth so they can come back. It's very, very weird. Now, without getting too spoilery or in-depth or anything, basically nothing is as it seems. No class of living thing, whether it's machines or androids or humans or whatever, are exactly what they claim to be. And the more you play the game, the more you realize that the idea of sentience and the idea of existence is constantly being challenged by this game. This game makes tons of references to existential philosophy and its like central story point more or less is trying to figure out who exists and who deserves to exist. 
This works because Nier Automata ultimately has like a very humanist message and it seems to be a message that's like very anti-discrimination for example like you could easily see like how the story could go really poorly but it's delivered in a way that is incredibly moving and beautiful it's very empathetically written it's very well written it's kind of just like a masterpiece of video game storytelling but what I love about the way that the storytelling and the gameplay mechanics work together is that the game has you experience all of these big existential and philosophical things that it also talks about. Now, this game was written by Yoko Taro, who is a writer who's been working for Square Soft, Square Enix, I do this all the time, Jesus Christ, who's been working for Square Enix for a very long time. And a classic problem with old school JRPGs and even like middle period, you know, Squaresoft games is that characters like to talk, they like to give big philosophical speeches, but they're just that. It's just lip service and it's kind of feels disconnected from the gameplay and the game world and just generally the things you do moment to moment in the game. Nier Automata kind of has a classic JRPG feel to like the scope and scale and how wild the story is, but it's all perfectly integrated with the gameplay, which is what I find to be so impressive. Like I said, your characters don't really understand who or what they are. They don't really understand what it means to be alive because they can die and come back at any time. And that's something that the game has you, the player, experience. They also make you play through the game twice with different characters to see completely different perspectives on like the machines and humans and all these different things. And it just works so beautifully because once again, when you hear these characters speak, when you see these story events portrayed, they hit harder and they, you know, last longer in your mind because you've also experienced them. Like I said, I feel like this is explicitly a riff on the way that Dark Souls used its own death mechanic to reinforce the themes of death, rebirth, entropy, and decay. But in this game, it's all about themes of existence and existentialism. It's so so cool like it's one of those things that you really only see a game do once in a generation it's so beautiful and moving and awesome but it's also something that i'd like to see games do more because i do think it's possible i personally think we're kind of heading for a new era where death mechanics play a much more important role in video games and that developers feel empowered to take a much more experimental approach to said mechanics. Just in the last year, I've played a couple games that I think handle this topic very, very well and that I personally am really, really fascinated by. One was Solar Ash and I think that Solar Ash is a great example of a game that feels influenced by both Nier Automata and Dark Souls, but also does something really, really radically different. First of all, with its gameplay, it doesn't play like either game at all. It also has a super unique world and aesthetic, but with its story and its themes, it hews a lot closer to both of those games. 
What I thought was so cool about that game, however, was that it used that whole setup of like, you're caught in a dream world, death doesn't really matter. You're just trying to piece together these weird, like fragmentary thoughts and experiences and ideas. And he used it to tell the story that was like beautiful and moving, but also really gripping. Like, I actually think it's one of the best video game mysteries I've ever come across. And that's why, like, I talked about it one episode. I'm talking about it again. And I will never, ever, like, post, you know, unlabeled spoilers for this game. I haven't even posted, like, labeled spoilers for this game because I know a lot of people haven't played it and I want more people to play it because, like, I love how it approaches the whole, like, sci-fi mystery thing and what it does with a lot of these same ideas. I think also, once again, it integrates the gameplay ideas and gameplay elements into the story so beautifully that I just think it's something that everyone should experience. It's such a fascinating take on what could generally be called the style of game. Another game that I got super, super obsessed with and I love is, of course, Tunic. I talked about Tunic in a couple other episodes. Um, I think it's a masterpiece, but what I love about this game is that it does have a Dark Souls style death mechanic. And at first it seems not quite as diegetic as the other games I've talked about in this episode, but ultimately in some ways ends up being more so because it has this strange meta element. You're not really sure where you the player are and how you exist in this world. So it's both like a Dark Souls style nonstop death mechanic. It's also a weird existential thing like in Nier Automata. And I think ultimately it's just such an insane game. Like there's so much to think about. There's so much to consider, but it also just has you in this super fun nonstop gameplay loop. Tunic is another game that's just like an absolute masterpiece that I think everyone should go play like right now. I guess I made this episode to just kind of talk about something that I'm really fascinated by in video games, not just because I think it's a really powerful tool for enhancing the storytelling and world building in video games, but also because I feel like it's something that specifically within horror games could be used to really like elevate the genre. Something I've talked about a lot on this show is the way that death can sometimes be so out of place in horror game design. I think like when we talk about or think about specifically like classic horror games, we think of survival horror. And in survival horror, the really strict, stringent and old school parameters by with like death was defined mostly worked because once again, those games are supposed to be about survival horror, survival, you know? So like a game being as punishing as Dino Crisis, like letting you run out of ammo, letting you bork your save file, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was cool in a way. It fit the genre. That was the style. We can sit here and argue all day about how well it's held up, but I will say that I think for the time and for the style, that was like a totally defensible and I think even sensible choice for those games to make. However, over time, game design has really, really moved away from so many of the hallmarks of survival horror. Things have gotten, you know, for lack of a better term, more convenient, 
more accessible. We're just more used to having like modern amenities. And I also think that's fine. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with those amenities. I, I like them too. I'm an adult. I have two jobs. I can't deal with that much bullshit from a video game, right? But that's also kind of created a dissonance. I think the best example of it is in these kind of first person exploration based horror games that I've talked about a lot where like you mostly just walk around and vibe, but then sometimes you can also die. It's weird. It's very, very weird. I've thought it was weird from the moment I first tried one of these games. And I think it's still a problem up until this day. I just recently talked about Amnesia the Bunker and it's definitely a problem in that game. I think that playing games like the ones that I talk about in this episode, to me, is very satisfying because you see how games can take something simple and ingrained and accepted, which is like death in video games, and they can actually twist it and do something new and exciting and different with it. And they can also find a way to make it work within a very modern, layered, nuanced story. Like, it's something just totally different from what we've come to expect from video games or what we used to expect from video games. Personally, I'm hoping that we start to see more and more and more horror games, explicitly capital H genre horror games, that experiment with these kind of death mechanics, especially if they have deeper stories that want to talk about death, decay, entropy, and existentialism. Which, like, let's be real, that's all the best shit ever, right? Video games are getting to a point where we've refined so many of the classic archetypes and old school ideas. And that's actually something we're going to be talking about in the next episode for sure. But for me, whenever I play a game that has this kind of death mechanic or this kind of flow state, I find it really satisfying and really exciting because I think that there's a lot of opportunity here. And it makes me think about like what future video games could do with these ideas. And yeah, I just find it exciting. Like any artistic medium, video games need to grow and evolve and change and go through that metamorphosis. And I think that on this specific point, there's actually a lot of opportunity there. So yeah, I'm going to light up this bonfire and pray that I never have to see another game over screen again. Amen. <laughs> 